Hello, everyone, and welcome to BibleQuest.tv, the Tuesday edition. Uh, this is where we uh, have an open discussion on biblical topics and questions from you and our audience. Glad you're here with us today. I'd also like to add that we rely on what the Bible has to say on any particular subject as we have these discussions, and we want to hear feedback from you as we're doing so. If, you're joined, uh, if you have joined us today through BibleQuest.tv and you're using the Zoom app, Please text your questions to us using the Q&A window. Our panelists are Stephen from Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Hi, Stephen. How are you? Hey, hey Drew. Doing well. How are you doing? Doing very good. Thank you. Uh, Jeff, uh, broadcasting from Exton, PA. Uh, Jeff, are you there right now? We'll give him a minute. I know he stepped away, but Jeff's with us today from Exton. Uh, and no, Andrew's our webcast engineer. He'll be handling your questions and comments as they come in. And uh, hi, Noah. How you doing? I'm good. How are you guys? Doing good. Thanks a lot. And I'm your host, Drew DeGrotter from Homesdale, PA. Welcome, everybody, to the show today. Um, if you're joining us through my Facebook page, please feel free to leave your comments or questions in the comments below, and we'll try to get to those as soon as we can. Okay. I think I hear Jeff coming back. Yes, I am here. Hi, Jeff. Jeff's coming in from Exton, PA. How you doing, Jeff? And get your—I don't think your video's on, Jeff. Okay, how's that? I think you're there on you now. There I'm you sorry you asked, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, glad to have everybody here today. Uh, was there anything else that we were leaving out before we get started, um, Stephen? I think you were talking about your Facebook page. You got that taken care of? Yep, ready to roll. Uh, I think we mentioned it about a week ago, maybe two weeks ago, guys. We wanted to add a new. Um, uh, a new segment or a new section of the show called um, what's the actual title, Stephen? You remember what the title was? What we come up with? Uh, in the Bible or not? It has been kind of the working title uh, that we've talked about, and just the general question. There's lots of things that people talk about that people think it's in the Bible. Turns out it's not in the Bible, or vice versa. That wait, that's in the Bible, um, and so that's a real important question to ask. Is well. Is it actually in the Bible? If so, where is it? What does the Bible say about it? Exactly. And we're not going to start off with that, but we're going to add that in after we get through with the first question. Um, the first question, you ready, guys? What is the first question? Okay, you're ready. <laughs> Are there two laws in the Old Testament at the same time? In other words, the law written on stone, called the law of God, and the law written by hand, called the law of Moses. Yeah. And I have a chart here, and this is uh, based on Sabbatarian um, beliefs. So let's talk about briefly what we mean by Sabbatarian. There are several denominations today that believe we need to be keeping the seventh-day Sabbath, that, people, that Christians ought to worship on the Sabbath day, which is the seventh day, which is Saturday. And so they're called Sabbatarians, and there's your Seventh-day Adventists, that's one denomination. There are Seventh-day Baptists, uh, and there are some others. But the biggest would be the Seventh-day Adventist denomination. Right. And, and they actually go so far as saying, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but go so far as saying that it's even wrong for Christians to worship God on Sunday. I, I, I'm not aware of that. You may be right. I've never had any of them tell me that it would be wrong to worship God on Sunday. I think the ones I've talked to would be happy for Christians to worship any time, but they do believe that Sabbath day is the day of Christian worship. They, they make this argument that 
Christians worship on Sunday as a result of something that Constantine did in the fourth century, that in the Bible it was not taught that Christians were to worship on the first day of the week, and that Constantine came along and changed the day from Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. Well, so there's a couple of things there. One is uh, this idea that, that the Bible teaches that the Sabbath day is an eternal commandment of God for all people, and where they and they get at that by arguing there's two laws in the Old Testament. There's your ceremonial law, and yes, a lot of that was done away, but then there's your moral law, and that includes the Sabbath day, and that's permanent, they say. Right. I, I, I want to put up the chart that describes what you had just said. Yeah. But it's not – I want to go through all the detail of – the scripture references are there. And you can see this is how they break it down. they got the Ten Commandments on the left side and the ceremonial on the right side. And, and, you know, to be fair, I think we can acknowledge that there are different types of instructions given in the Old Testament. Some are very ceremonial and some are very ethical. Uh, you know, Jesus says that the whole law and the prophets is summed up in this word, thou shalt love thy Lord, thy, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, whole and mind. And the second like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments, things the law and the prophets. So if somebody wants to come along and treat the Old Testament instructions uh, in a way that suggests some are not nearly as important as others, remember, and some are just ceremonial, even though there's a ceremonial aspect to many of them, Jesus says all of it was about loving God and loving your neighbor. So he doesn't, Jesus doesn't really make a distinction there. Isn't that interesting, though, Jeff, that uh, that law that Jesus quotes is not from the Ten Commandments? That's true. That's true. Uh, so if, if, if the ceremonial, I'm, I'm off a little bit on where, where I want to go with the chart, but if the ceremonial law is the one that's nailed to the cross, then that would include <laughs> the greatest yeah. two commandments. Yeah, they, they rule out Jesus. What Jesus, what Jesus says is the greatest commandment. One of the other things they say also that proves that the Ten Commandments is eternal forever, and even, I've heard him say, more important, is that they're written on stone versus the one written in the book by Moses. That's called the Book of the Law. Um, and that because it was written on stone and because that is what was placed in the ark, whereas the Law of Moses was put on the side next to the art. And so they placed an importance on that. Yeah. And, and I think your wording there, they place an importance on that. I think this is the key. They are looking at various facts about laws written on stone and laws written in a book and whatnot. And they're attaching great significance to these things because what their agenda is, their agenda is to say the Sabbath is part of the Ten Commandments the Sabbath is to be observed today because the Ten Commandments are in effect forever, and all the other laws that we don't observe today, they're part of the ceremonial law. So they need that hard, fast distinction between the Ten Commandments and the ceremonial law. So otherwise, they're either going to have to give up their insistence on the Sabbath day, or they're going to have to start sacrificing sheep. And uh, yeah. they don't want to go either of those ways, so they need this distinction to be really pressed. Well, let me ask you another question before I get to a couple of the verses that I wanted to bring out. If if the Sabbath is the ten on the Ten Commandments side, which it is, 
that's a moral law? That's not ceremonial? Yeah, well, I, I guess they would say it is a moral law. And what they do is they go back to the idea that God rested on the seventh day and thus sanctified the seventh day, which the Bible says, but they get out of that that God has somehow made this a, a moral issue. that Man must rest on the seventh day, and it was not just an Israelite law. It was for everybody, uh, and that it predated the law of Moses, in fact. And there, there, they're getting that out of thin air. There's no evidence in the Bible whatsoever of either men observing a seventh-day Sabbath prior to Exodus 16 or of God requiring or expecting man to observe a Sabbath, seventh-day Sabbath prior to Exodus 16. Exodus 16 is when God tells the Israelites for the first time, go out and get manna uh, on the seventh, sixth day. You'll get twice as much because there won't be any on the seventh day. That's a Sabbath rest. And then just a few chapters later, it's incorporated into the Ten Commandments as the Fourth Commandment. What we see in that is that's the beginning of it, and it was for Israel specifically. It wasn't to command everybody like the Seventh-day Adventists want to say it was. Exactly. And also the term uh, ceremonial law versus uh, moral law. Yeah. That's not a biblical phrase. You'll find those words in the Scriptures, but not together. You'll never find moral law in the same verse and ceremonial law. just want to be clear about that. That's not a biblical phrase as used together. Yeah, I don't know of any place in the Bible where I could find a description of the Ten Commandments as a moral law and a description of everything else as merely ceremonial. There's certainly moral aspects to much of the rest of the law. When you start talking about the instructions about a parapet around the, the roof of your house, that's designed to keep people from falling off the house what that is, is about moral responsibility. I am liable for somebody who's injured through my negligence uh, when I build a house. That's a moral law, and yet it's not part of the Ten Commandments. And on the other hand, you, you look at the Ten Commandments, and when you see the Sabbath, there there's certainly a ceremonial aspect to the keeping of the Sabbath in the Old Testament. So they are a little bit arbitrary in making those distinctions so hard fast. And so back to your 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 main point is that they need to separate the two and identify them as two separate objects, right? They need to because they are trying to get at preserving the Sabbath day as an instruction to us. And the only way they can do that without also preserving all of that animal sacrifice rules and everything else is to make this distinction. So let, the moral laws for all time, and that's the Ten Commandments. All right, so let's go. That's how they view it. Let's see how the scriptures view it. Okay. Turn over to uh, Nehemiah, Prophet Nehemiah, chapter 8. And the very first verse starts out with, I'm going to read from the King James Version, which I normally don't do. But the reason I do that is because the gentleman I've been studying with, that's the only translation he'll want to study from. Okay. So from the King James in the very first verse, it says all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. Which book is that? Well, the book of the law of Moses. That's not the moral law, 10 commandments. No. All right, so you can read through the next few verses, and you can see this is going to happen for a full, I think it's a week. 
They're going to, every day, Ezra's going to read the book. Uh, verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, just calling it the book. Um, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered. Uh, verse 8, so they read in the book in the law of God. Is, Wait a minute. Let's back up. What did it say in verse 1? Verse book of the one. law of the Moses. The book of the law of Moses, and in verse 8, Nehemiah, is refer- as it's written in Nehemiah, says they read in the book in the law of God. Yeah, so, so it's calling the same thing, the law of Moses and the law of God. And I think, am I right about this, that the Sabbatarians call the Ten Commandments the law of God and the ceremonial the law of Moses? Exactly. That's on the chart. Yeah. Yeah. So, so here you've got, and, and it gives an example of the law of what's in what they're reading down in verse 14. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. That's not part of the Ten Commandments. At all. No. That's part of what we would think of if we were going to divide this up into moral and ceremonial. That's part of what we would think of as ceremonial, but it's called the law of God here. He closes out that chapter in verse 18. Also, day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read in the book of the law of God. And it, they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, it was a solemn assembly according unto the manner. So, I mean, that should answer it. At least it does for me, that the law of God and the law of, there's no distinction. It's just the context that they're reading it in and the different, different uh, statutes, but it's all the same thing. Yeah. yeah, so so in the Old Testament, we don't see a distinction there. I think there's a helpful verse in the, in the New Testament as well. Um, when we come to the book of Colossians, chapter 2, um, and as the Colossians, uh, Paul hadn't been there, but he's writing to them to correct some things that are going on, some false teaching that they've started to get into. And one of those things was that, Apparently the, the Gentiles are being persuaded to live like Jews and to keep Jewish traditions. And so in Colossians chapter two, um, in verse 16, Paul writes to them and he says, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. That's Colossians 2, 16, and 17. So, so here, Paul specifically says, writing to Christians, don't let anyone pass judgment on you with regard to these various things. He includes the Sabbath in that list of things. So he's saying, Sabbath is not for you anymore. Uh, don't uh, don't let anyone pass judgment on you because in essence, God is not passing judgment on you for not keeping these things. Yeah. And so, so that, I think that addresses what the Sabbatarian agenda is when they talk about moral and ceremonial law, it's really an agenda driven to uh, preserve the Sabbath as something that's required for all time. And right here, Paul puts the Sabbath in the category of things that were just part of the shadow that we're not to be judged under today, as you said, Stephen. Now, the Sabbatarians have an answer for that. Okay, okay. But before you get to the answer, I did want to uh, reach out to the audience. If anyone's in the audience that has that mindset, we would like to hear from that side of the argument as well. Yeah, yeah, that'd be good. So I don't have to make the Sabbatarian argument for them. (laughs) Go ahead, then. 
All right. If you do have questions or comments, please do send them either through Facebook or using the Q&A feature of the, of the uh, Zoom, of the BibleQuest uh, page. So what the Sabbatarians do with Colossians 2.16, because it's a problem for them. Uh, it says, a Sabbath day, which are a shadow of the things to come, body is Christ's. So what they do is they say, well, this use of the Sabbath day is not referring to the weekly Sabbath. In the Old Testament, the idea of a Sabbath rest was used of the seventh day that came every week. It was also used of various other holy days. It was used of a Sabbath year, uh, the seventh year, when they would let, let the land lie fallow and those things. The Sabbatarians say that the, the weekly Sabbath is a part of God's moral law, the Ten Commandments that are forever. All the other Sabbaths are part of the ceremonial law. And they say correctly that in Colossians 2.16, the word for Sabbath is plural. And therefore, here's where they're incorrect. They argue that it must not be referring to the seventh day Sabbath that comes every week, but it's referring to the other Sabbath days. Therefore, Colossians 2 is putting the, the seventh year Sabbath in the context or the category of shadows, not the seventh day that comes every week. Well, here's the problem with that. Notice that in Colossians 2.16, it says, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a feast day or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Feast day, new moon, Sabbath day. We have that kind of language several times in the Old Testament. That sounds like a progression from annual to monthly to weekly. Exactly. The feasts were annual, the new moon, obviously monthly, then the Sabbath would be weekly. If one of you guys will be turning to Second Chronicles chapter 31 and verse 3, we can get there in just a moment. But I'll, we were in Nehemiah, so for now I'll turn to Nehemiah. This is Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 33. Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 33. But I'm going to start in verse 32. We also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the continual grain offering, for the continual burnt offering, those are daily, the Sabbaths, that's weekly, the new moon, that's monthly, the appointed times, those are your annual feasts, that language appointed times is used of the annual feasts, for the holy things and for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and all the week of the house of God. Our, and all the work of the house of our God. So it's in reverse order, but you've got Sabbaths, new moon, and appointed times, weekly, monthly, and annual. And I think the earlier references are, are to the daily for what it's worth. You have Second Chronicles 31, verse 3? I've got that. All right. Second Chronicles 31 and verse 3, and this is Hezekiah's restoring the worship of the temple. Uh, has, uh, excuse me, Second Chronicles 31, 3. Uh, the contribution of the king from his own possessions was for the burnt offerings, the burnt offerings of morning and evening, There's your and the burnt offerings of the Sabbath. There's your weekly. The new moons. Monthly. And the appointed feasts, mm -hmm. as it is written in the law of the Lord. And there's your annual. And then another reference where we see something similar is First Chronicles chapter 21. And I'll just start in the middle of the verse. Uh, well, let's start in verse 30. They're to stand evening. Uh, they stand every morning to thank and to praise the Lord, and likewise at evening. There's daily, verse thirty-one, and to offer all burnt offerings to the Lord on the Sabbaths. There's weekly, 
the new moons, there's monthly, and the fixed festivals, there's your annual, in the number set by the ordinance concerning them continually before the Lord. So this is a stereotypical kind of description of these holy days where you give them in order of frequency or in reverse order of frequency. And that's what we have in Colossians chapter 2. Feast day, new moon, Sabbath day. Annual, monthly, weekly. So what, what we was that last reference you had there, Jeff? First, First Chronicles 23, verse 31. Okay, thanks. 30, 30 and 31. So, so what do we get out of that? Well, what we get out of that is Colossians 2.16 is the weekly Sabbath. And Paul says it's part of the shadow and the reality is Christ. So uh, whatever the Sabbatarians want to say about moral law and, and ceremonial law, what they're really trying to do is preserve the Sabbath as something that's required for Christians to observe today, and they're wrong. In fact, as uh, Stephen was reading Second uh, Chronicles, those different Sabbaths that pointed out, he read in verse 3, as written in the law of the Lord. I noted that too, and I was reading. Notice, I didn't notice that before until you read it, and I'm looking at the chart. Uh, well, I'm not sharing my screen now, right? No. But I'm on the chart, uh, under the Ten Commandments, they refer to the law of God. And the other side, ceremonial, the law of Moses. So right in the law of the Lord, the law of God, is the Sabbath's the, the, the distinction between all of, the, all of them. Which includes the ceremonial Sabbaths. Yeah. So, so when we carefully look at the scriptures on that, I think it's we can clearly see in the New Testament, under the new covenant of Jesus, we're no longer expected to keep the Sabbath day, uh, not to rest on the Sabbath or to worship on the Sabbath. Uh, but what we see in the New Testament is Christians getting together on the first day of the week uh, to worship the Lord. And let's make this observation. Somebody could say, well... Why did God make such a big deal of the Sabbath day if then it's just done and we're not keeping it today? Remember, the Old Testament was full of things that foreshadowed spiritual realities. The Sabbath. Uh, in the Old Testament, there was this concept of you were slaves in Egypt. You're, you're going to get a day of rest now. And it, and, it, and it anticipated the rest they were going to get in the promised land, which was uh, their rest, you know, God swore in his wrath, they would not enter into his rest when they were disobedient and had to die in the wilderness. So they had, they had a weekly Sabbath. It was pointing to the idea that God has a rest for you, and that rest was their home in the promised land, land of Canaan. But all of that is foreshadowing the ultimate rest that awaits God's people in Jesus Christ, our eternal home. In Hebrews, the uh, fourth chapter develops that thought fairly thoroughly. And, and so, yes, the Sabbath was important, but it was not a thing unto itself. It was a thing foreshadowing. It truly was a shadow of what's coming in Christ, the rest that we have in eternity with our, with our God. And I'd like to add, uh, our worship on, on, on the first day of the week is not a rest. Oh, uh, yeah. Resting, we're doing. Okay. <laughs> Um, Andy Disselkamp, one of our viewers, mentions Colossians 2 uses the term shadow, and Hebrews 4.4 4 refers to the weekly Sabbath as a type of the ultimate rest of God. Exactly what you were just saying. Yeah, those, and those ideas of shadow and type, they're two different ways of, of saying the same thing. It's a representation of a reality, a shadow 
gives you an idea of, of what is casting the shadow, but it's not the real it's not the real thing. And a type, uh, type anti-type, if, if you know kids today, they maybe never seen type. Uh, you had the old printing press, and you had type. Maybe some of us would at least be familiar with a typewriter. In a typewriter, you'd smash a key like the letter R, and there would be a little arm that would go up, and there would be a metal thing that would strike the ribbon, pressing the ink onto the paper. And it had something that looked like an R, but it was backwards. But when it pressed it, the image onto the paper, it came out the right direction. And so that was the, the metal key was the type, and the real thing is what goes on to the paper. So the Old Testament has types, and, and the Sabbath is a type of what's coming in Christ. Cool. Excellent. I had actually never heard the explanation of where the term came from. That's helpful to understand that. Yeah. You're that but, young, Stephen? <laughs> I know what a typewriter is, and I've used one a couple of times, but it was for fun <laughs> and not for practical purposes. Well, and, and to, be, to be sure, uh, that usage of the word type probably goes back to the fact that in Greek, when we read about types, we, we are reading the word tupas, which is type, and it had the idea of figure, symbol, representation, that kind of an idea. So then that got carried over into the world of printing, and then, of course, we that. well, I'm, I'm done. We're, we're, I've got a note here that <laughs> 25 minutes in, so somebody's apparently telling us we need to move on and talk about something else. Yeah, I think right. we got that one done. What's the, what's the next thing, uh, Stephen? So our next question uh, is kind of this segment uh, we're talking about, is it in the Bible or is it not? Um, and, and particularly with the question to, there, there are sometimes these myths or legends that come up that people say are biblical. And well, we want to look at that. What are they actually in the Bible or are they not? And we want to look at two names uh, that come up or two words that come up. And one is probably more familiar than the other. The two that we're going to look at today are the word Lucifer and the word Lilith. And uh, if, as I say those, there's probably something that comes to your mind. When, when we say the word Lucifer, what do most people think about? Satan. Yeah. Because, well, it's just another name for Satan. Uh, I'm not sure where it comes from, but it's probably in the Bible somewhere. Um, and so what about Lucifer, where, where does that word uh, even come up in the Bible? Does it come up in the Bible? In the King James, it does. <laughs> yeah, there, there's only one time, and it's only in the King James that yeah. that verse comes up. is Isaiah 14, verse 12. Uh, Isaiah 14, verse 12. So that's where it's talking about the devil, huh? Well, that's, that's the problem, is we get to Isaiah 14, and this is just another good example of reading context, not just reading individual verses, but reading chapters, and even better, reading full books of the Bible together. Isaiah chapter 14, back in verse 3, it says, When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you are made to serve, you will take up this taunt against who? Uh, the, the devil. No, it says the king of Babylon. This is the king of Babylon. That's what the text says. Oh, wow. Well, some people may have thought he was the devil. So he then goes on to describe uh, 
the uh, the taunt that they take up against the king of Babylon. That the text says who it's talking about. Um, and again, this is a prophecy saying when they come out of captivity, it's like they're going to take up this taunt against the king who oppressed them. And so in verse 12, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It doesn't have the word Lucifer, but this is the text that would have that in the King James. This is Isaiah 14, 12. Uh, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. So here it's talking about the king of Babylon, and it says, how you are fallen from heaven. See, that's another kind of buzzword that people have. Is, oh, who fell from heaven? Because they've already got an idea in their head of, a, of an origin story for Satan that has him falling from heaven. So they read this, and they go, oh, this must be talking about the devil. Right. And that's where the King James puts that in, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of dawn. Uh, so in the other translation in. you quoted, it's day star, and in mine it's star of the morning, but the King James has Lucifer. Yes. And What's Lucifer? Literally, the word Lucifer, it's the Latin word for day star or morning star. So it's just kind of a Latin translation of what the word actually means. The, the Hebrew word itself, I believe, is Hillel. I'm, I'm not uh, much of a Hebrew guy, um, but... Uh, I'm just going to leave you out there by yourself because I'm not either. So I'm That's saying, all right. You're out there all by yourself with the Hebrew. <laughs> oh, can you repeat that verse again, Stephen? Uh, oh, the verse or the Hebrew word? No, the chapter and verse of where that word is. Isaiah 14, chapter 14, verse 12 is where that is. Okay. So, all right. So you've got this passage in a taunt against the king of Babylon. And addressing the king of Babylon, it says, How you have fallen from heaven. O star of the morning, sun of the dawn, you've been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. Um, maybe there's two questions here. Maybe, first of all, yeah, are we sure it's talking about the king of Babylon? I mean, I know verse 4 says this taunt against the king of Babylon. Uh, does the context fit that? We might look at verses 9, 10, 11, uh, verse 8. Uh, but the second question is, if it is talking about the king of Babylon, why is he called a star of the morning, and why is he said to have fallen from heaven? Well, if I understand correctly, there were some some background uh, about. Uh, I'm not even entirely sure. Jeff, do you have some thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, okay. First of all, let's just nail down what you've already shown us that it is talking about the King of Babylon. It says King of Babylon in verse 14, and if we look at the the whole taunt here, which starts in, I'm sorry, it says King of Babylon, verse four. If we look at the whole taunt, which starts in the middle of verse four, how the oppressor has ceased. So the King of Babylon was an oppressor. Uh, It talks about the staff which he used to strike the peoples. The King of Babylon had gone to war against many nations and defeated them. Uh, The cypress down in verse eight, the cypress trees rejoice over you and the cedars of Lebanon saying, since you were laid low, no tree cutter comes up against us. King of Babylon would come through and defeat somebody and cut down the trees and use the trees to build his weapons and whatnot, whatnot. But now that he's brought down, they don't have to worry. Verse nine, Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. They will all respond and say to you, Even you have been made weak as we, you have become like us. These are other kings that Babylon had defeated. They'd gone down to the grave, Sheol. Now the king of Babylon is brought down, 
and they're saying, aha, you're like us now. You know, you're right here with us. So yeah, the context fits. It's the king of Babylon. Even backing up a little bit, starting in the very beginning of chapter 13, this is the oracle concerning Babylon. If we go on over to chapter uh, 15 in verse 1, it's the oracle concerning Moab. If we go on over to chapter 17 in verse 1, it's the oracle concerning Damascus. This is a section in Isaiah where there are pronouncements against various nations. And, the, and in the immediate section in where, where he's pronouncing against Babylon, he takes up this taunt against the king of Babylon. So yes, it's about the king of Babylon. As to why it can be said he has fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, these oriental kings would exalt themselves as if they were deity. You can read Nebuchadnezzar's statement in Daniel, the fourth chapter, uh, where he's warned, you know, you're too full of yourself. Uh, God's going to bring you down. And um, he goes out and he says, is this not Babylon, the great city, which I myself have built? And he was forgetting the lesson that, that uh, is the lesson of the book of Daniel. God bestows the kingdoms upon whomsoever he pleases. God's in charge. Nebuchadnezzar had exalted himself in his own mind to a position where he thought he was in charge and there was no God to whom he was responsible. So he's exalted himself to the heavens, so to speak. Yeah, so this is not an origin story saying uh, Satan fell to the earth, but this is saying figuratively of the king of Babylon that he has just made himself out to kind of raise himself up to heaven and now God is bringing him bringing him back down. Yeah. To bring earth. him down to earth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll bring you down to earth, King of Babylon. Uh, German Ortiz says, some say it has re- reference to Satan's fall. That's what we're talking about. Some people take this passage out of context, and they read, fallen from heaven, and then in the King James it says Lucifer, and they think, ah, that's the devil. No, we're, what we're seeing is in context, it's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Lucifer, as Stephen's already mentioned, is from the Latin expression for the star of the morning or the day star. Lucifer, if you break it down to its co- component parts, would be light-bearing. Uh, so, you know, the various Greek kings did this too. Antiochus IV was called Antiochus Epiphanes, the, appear- the appearing one. And sometimes people translate it Antiochus the Glorious, that, that kind of thing. Um, and various, various, both Greek rulers and Roman rulers and um, Persian rulers uh, expected to be worshipped as deity. Uh, so that's what it's talking about. So then here's the yeah. next question. And, and while we're on the word there real quick, Jared Saltz, who does very well with Hebrew, uh, commented and said that f- for what it's worth, the Hebrew word in Isaiah fourteen twelve is pronounced Halal. Okay. All right. Good. So we got the correct pronunciation from someone who knows what they're talking about. Thanks, Jared. All right. Good. Um, I, I wasn't going to correct you. I tell you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. Uh, so then, well, if that's the only reference to Lucifer, it's in the King James Version in this passage, 18, Isaiah 14, 12, then this idea that people have about Lucifer being the devil, that's kind of that's kind of a myth then it's not what the Bible says, right? That's the way I'm understanding it. Now I, I will say this, that the Bible never gives us the, the backstory, the origin story for the devil. Uh, we do read about Satan fallen from light, fallen from heaven as lightning in Luke, the 10th chapter. And I believe it's verse 17. 
And we do read about Satan's power being taken from him in Hebrews, the second chapter. Uh, we do read about Satan being cast down to the earth in Revelation, the 12th chapter, and I believe it's about verse 9. But in those passages, the fall of Satan that's being described is when he is defeated by virtue of the fact that Jesus has overcome death and thus taken away Satan's power from him. And I don't know if we need to go to those passages and demonstrate that, but let me just make the statement. The Bible nowhere gives us a story of when Satan became evil um, and, and describes it as his falling from heaven. We read about his loss of power, and that's described as his fall from heaven. Uh, but that's in connection with Jesus' victory over death, his resurrection from the dead, and ascension to the right hand of God. Yeah. If we, were, if we want to speculate, I'll do this. Did Satan exist from all eternity or not? And I'll say he must not have, else he would be self-existing, and that would make him deity, and he's not. There's only one God. If he, existed, if he did not exist from all eternity, then he must have been created. And if he was created, ultimately, he must have been created by God. And God doesn't create evil. So if he did not exist from all eternity, and he was created, and he was created by God, he must have at least had the ability to choose to be good. Adam and Eve were created, and they had the ability to choose to be good, but they rebelled. They disobeyed. We had the ability to choose to do good but we at some point rebel and, and choose what is wrong. What we have in Satan is apparently, the Bible never describes this, but is apparently some supernatural being, some angelic being who has rebelled and chosen to do evil. Do we have anything in the Bible that suggests to us that there are any angels that have rebelled against God? Yeah, there's some angels that didn't uh, respect their positions or level. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Second Peter 2 and Jude. Yeah. Say that again. Say it again. Second Peter chapter two has referenced that as does the book of Jude. Uh, Second Peter chapter two and verse four. Second Peter two four. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And then the book of Jude verse six. Six. You go ahead and read that. True. And the angels who do not stay within their own position, that's what I was thinking of, of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So it's not at all unreasonable then to suppose the same thing could be true of Satan. It's just that the Bible never describes it. And when people, uh, here's the problem, people talk about Lucifer and they think it's Satan and they talk about Satan's fall and they think it's Satan. The problem is then when they go to Isaiah 14, 12, they don't realize what that text is really about. It's about the King of Babylon. And when they go to Revelation chapter 12 and verse nine, they don't realize what that text is really about. It's about Jesus victory. And when they go to Luke chapter 10 and verse 17, they don't realize what that passage is really about. It's about Jesus overcoming the devil when he's raised from the dead. We can talk about those if we want to. But that's, that's the issue here when people get mixed up on, on this business about Lucifer. So you're saying the danger of it takes away or discredits the point and the message that we're getting from those scriptures. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, Luke Moyer 
has an interesting connection to make. He, he writes, uh, there's interesting fulfillment found in Jesus, and then puts fulfillment in quotes there. Um, it's not a New Testament connection that's made, but you can notice this. He says, uh, Jesus in the New Testament is described as the morning star. Notice uh, in Isaiah 14, 19, and 20 about an empty tomb. While the king of Babylon may have praised himself as the morning star, he will be ejected as punishment from a glorious tomb. To fulfill that to the fullest, Jesus is the morning star, which comes down by his own free will, is subjected to death, but is rewarded with the empty tomb, the resurrection. Uh, While the kings of the earth have glorious tombs, chapter 14, verse 18, Christ's glory is found in an empty tomb. Mm-hmm. That's pretty yeah. interesting. There's a, a, more, a contrast there, a direct contrast between the yeah. king of Babylon and what Jesus does in his death, burial, and resurrection. And that goes along with a theme throughout the Bible where human kings exalt themselves uh, to the position as if they are God. And, and here's the true one, Jesus Christ, who's God in the flesh. And then to, to highlight those contrasts, that's, that's pretty neat. We also yeah. have a comment from Frederick Gray about Matthew twenty five forty one. Mm-hmm. It refers to a fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So now that puts the devil in the category of angel, doesn't it? Well, what is interesting is, so we, we have the Bible explicitly telling us about the devil's end, not about his beginning. The yes. Bible is more concerned with his end. <laughs> Here's what's going to happen to him. And in that context, of course, we're being warned, we'll share that fate with him if we're not Christ's. Excellent comments coming in. And uh, I know we're getting close to the end. And I want to just remind people to use the Q&A box if you're coming in on the Zoom app or the text windows, as many of you have been doing it coming in from the, the Facebook page. Very good, very good discussion. You know, I don't know if I want to start that next one which is really an, uh, an item under myths and legends. You guys want to save that for next week? As no, as- let's get rid of it real quick now. The one about Lilith? Yeah, you yeah. want to get rid of it quick? Okay. Yeah, let's get rid of it quick. Let me just explain then where it starts. It starts with uh, a contradiction. No, no. It starts Quickly. with so-called appearance of a contradiction between two gen- uh, genus uh, creation stories. There's some uh, rabbinical literature from either the first century or just before the first century that Genesis 1 is describing a creation story of Adam and a woman, his wife, male and female. And Genesis 2 is talking about his wife, Eve. And what the rabbinical commentary, and I just want to stress that this is commentary, states, well, that must be referring to Adam's first wife in Genesis 1 doesn't say that doesn't say it doesn't even say anything about it just gives some uh, uh, what I call an overview of the creation but what's interesting is over the centuries there's been some uh, myths coming out of the Babylonian Talmud I believe and uh, Syrian documents as far back as 3,000 years ago or 3,000 years BC rather about a she-demon um, a demon that um, has powers over, it kills babies, or has powers over men and their fantasies. And when these myths started coming out, apparently these rabbinical commentaries started saying, ah, that must, and they used the term Lilith in those um, pagan writings. And they, the rabbinical literature then started saying, well, that must be the name of the first 
Adam's first wife. And how do you come up with that connection? I don't know, because it's not in the Bible, except there is the term Lilith one place, right, Stephen? Yeah, Isaiah 34, verse 14, uh, there's a Hebrew word that is either pronounced Lilith or or something similar to that. Again, my Hebrew pronunciation (laughs) is not great. Isaiah chapter 34, verse 14 in the English Standard Version says, And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. And the Hebrew word Lilith, or some such, is that word for night bird. Um, And so it's... And the the footnote in the ESV says identity is uncertain. It seems this is a some sort of term for a desert creature. And in ancient languages, like ancient Hebrew, sometimes animal names are the hardest to translate because it's hard to tell from context. Is that an ostrich? Is it an owl? Is it a, you know, this type? Usually they can kind of tell if if it's a bird or if it's something else, but sometimes it's very hard to be specific. But even in the context, it's not talking about a female demon. And it's not talking about the first wife of Adam. And that's right. And so there's just, that's why this comes under the myth and legends category. And the reason I brought it up, someone asked me, they said, oh, you don't know about Lilith, Adam's first wife? Huh? So, okay. So here's, and we're not going to have time. We're out of time right now, but maybe next week we'll come back to this uh, if you want to. This idea of the two accounts of creation, the one in Genesis 1 and Genesis, and the one in Genesis 2, um, we can, there are a few th- things that would be worthwhile to say about that. But I guess we're out of time today, so maybe next week. Well, let's, say, let's start off next week with that, because that is very important that we don't um, ignore the, someone saying that there's two separate creation accounts, and, that, and that's not true at all. Well, there are two separate creation accounts, but it's not that one contradicts the other. There are different purposes for the account in Chapter 1 and the one in Chapter 2, and, and we, we, we can look at that. Yeah, exactly. That's my point. I didn't mean that there aren't two. Uh, it's just what are they and how is that uh, reconciled? Well, I put up our screen, our closing screen, again, with contact information if anybody wants to contact us. Um, our information is broadcast live, but we re- do the recordings. You can watch the recordings on BibleQuest.tv. Uh, they'll be also available on Facebook pages. You have to do a search, though, after time they go away. They go down down the list we're also doing podcasts and you can you can get the shows uh podcasts uh, usually 24 hours after the show has been recorded goes up on podcasts through um itunes st- uh, or uh google play be available there um yeah. and for those comments before we close out guys well, and just for those who are tuning in and you're only listening to the audio of this uh and you want to contact one of us if you're maybe tuning in through the podcast uh, my name is Stephen Rouse. I'm in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. You could call or text me at 334-734-2135. And I'm uh, Drew DeGrotto. I'm in Honesdale, Pennsylvania. You can uh, contact me directly at 570-228-2033. And I'm Jeff Smelser, 610-363-8042. Bye-bye. If we can be of any help to you, let us know. All right. Take care, everybody.